This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek in Ocala, Florida. And I am Christy Landwehr in chilly Aurora, Colorado. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for January 16th, episode 1853. This episode is brought to you by the Certified Horsemanship Association. Good morning, horse world. Houston, we have a problem. Ability equals skill plus knowledge. I got a bad feeling about this. Here's a safety tip for you from the Certified Horsemanship Association. Missed it by that much. How can I change this to make it better the next time? Well, do I can? Yeah. Time for Training Tuesday on Horses in the Morning with the Certified Horsemanship Association. So, Glenn, I was reading the paper this weekend, and I came across a very interesting article. Okay. It is all about cussing. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And how if you Do I need work... to get my button now? Yeah, Je- no, Jennifer did now? a lot of that yesterday. Okay. <laughs> Skype updated no, on her computer, behave. and I heard a lot of cussing coming from the other room. <laughs> no, we won't actually cuss, but it was an interesting article. It claims that they have done research that now proves that the cussing part of your brain is the emotional part of your brain, not the verbal part of your brain. So when you're doing something really exhilarating, like working out, you've really got to push yourself to that next level with that last bench press or whatever you're doing. If you cuss, you can actually go higher than if you say teacup or whatever <laughs> other word they had them saying. <laughs> Did they give particular words that were better than other words or just in general? Well, they said that our fabulous word that means um, fornication under consent of the king. Yes. That was the one that was the best. <laughs> I was going to guess that myself. But yeah, I could have guessed that. <laughs> yes. That was the winning word. So I just found that hilarious because how many of us, I'm sorry, even those of you out there that never, never swear, when you drop something on your foot, something comes out of your mouth. It might be teacup, but you say it with such emotion that, I don't know, maybe that then becomes the emotional side of your brain. Fascinating. (laughs) It makes sense that that comes from the emotional side because that's when you're saying it. Yes. You're usually pretty emotional when you're saying it, so... That's right. <laughs> and, but they've done proof, I guess, with um, people that are just coming back from um, brain injuries, and it affects the verbal side of their brain that they can still swear. So, because it didn't affect the emotional side of their brain. We'll have to let J- Jamie know this, Jennifer, because she'll be very happy with this news. She'll be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I need to read the paper more often because that was pretty entertaining for me. I, I enjoyed that article <laughs> <Yeah>. very much. <laughs> I, and they still make papers. That's the most incredible part. You actually found one. 
I do. But you know, every now and then when you're traveling or something like that, I don't know, you just need the real thing. You know, you just want to get off your screen for a second and have something tangible. Well, you know, last week when I was... You can hide behind that newspaper, too. You can hold it up in front of your face and nobody can make eye contact. I like that about a newspaper. I was staying at a hotel recently that I opened the door in the morning and there was the USA Today. When's the last... They used to do that all the time at hotels. Remember, USA Today. You'd get it every day at your door. It was the first time I'd seen that in forever. And USA Today is a about as thin. It's so thin now. It's not the paper it used to be. Six pages? Yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. I was surprised, though. It's the first time in a long time I'd seen a USA Today at the door. I know. I remember getting those all the time. Well, you know what? They've started to deliver to my front door is the Wall Street Journal. And I'll tell you, I, I, my brain's not quite big enough for the Wall Street Journal, I don't think. <laughs> And I get that every day, and I'm like, whoa. But it makes good fodder for the fireplace if we don't get around to reading it. So I appreciate the free paper. Is it still thick as ever, the Wall Street Journal? No, thin. Yeah. Thin. Yeah, you need a couple to start a fire now. Yes, yeah, kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you measure the success of your newspaper by how, whether or not it can start a fire on its own. There you go. Well, and you know, I'm a journalism major, so I feel like we can effectively talk about this because sorry, those out there that run newspapers, but most of you probably have electronic things too. It kind of goes both ways anymore with all kinds of media. You know, I think um, magazines are still holding their own because of the pretty color pictures, I think, and the glossiness. I think a lot of them are still doing well, but even they're combining and having to really rethink their business plans. It's just what's happening. I saw a major publication the other day that, uh, or, or just saw the announcement this morning that uh, 30% of their income is now off of their podcasts. Oh, that's a lot. Which I, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot more than I thought it would be. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really cool. It's Slate. I think it was Slate that 30% of their income is now off their podcasts. So that was, it was interesting because we haven't seen that statistic before. And it just, you're right. It just goes to show that they're delivering the news just in a different way. You, you yes. have to. I mean, you have to. That is the key. Yeah. Well, we're glad Absolutely. to hear that. Well, Jennifer, uh, what is coming up on today's podcast? Coming up on today's Certified Horsemanship Association episode, we're going to be talking all about upcycling horses. That's right. Training and retraining to make them bigger, better, and more wonderful. And we're going to be hearing from Pat Leach, who is hailing from, oh no, I don't see where she's from, but we're going to hear from Pat Leach. And we're also going to be hearing from Shelly Hensley, who I know for a fact is from Iowa. So stay tuned for the break, folks. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you. I know that you put out a call to the auditors to get some topics to, that every, that you wanted to hear what the listeners wanted to hear this year and put out a call in the auditor room, and they came through, and I think this is one of those topics we're talking about today, right? It sure is, and auditors, please keep it up because you had some great ideas, and I would love for some more ideas because to do these shows kind of ahead of time and get guests ahead of time is great, and you know we are training Tuesday, so it can be training horses, training people to ride the horses, whatever the case may be. And we're going to be talking a little bit or hearing a little bit about trailers and making sure your trailer is uh, inspected and up to date over the winter is a good time to do that. But first, let's talk about the CHA clinic schedule because that's all starting all over again for 2018. Oh, it is. All of our host sites put them up by the end of February. So you can get on our site, which is chainstructors.com or CHA.horse. You can go to clinics and you can look by either uh, date or location, depending on if you want to stay where you're at and you just have a certain date or if you want to go to Hawaii or somewhere cool and do your clinic or in that case, warm and do your clinic. 
And they're everything. Our equine facility manager ones are up. Our standard English Western ones are up. Our trail ones are starting to go up. So check it out. You don't have to be an instructor to go to them. You can be somebody interested in horses and have your own and just audit and learn from all the different instructors teaching all the different things. So lots of fun. Go check it out when you can. Is there a particular clinic if they're a first timer going to one of the CHA clinics that you would recommend or is it just what you're interested in? You know, that's a good question, Glenn. And I really think the standard English Western would be the best because it's everything from, um, you know, Western horsemanship to reining to dressage to jumping. And it's everything level one, meaning I'm walk trotting or walk jogging all the way up to doing simple flying changes and jumping a course or doing a dressage or reining pattern. So that's probably the best one. And are the clinics specifically designed to teach other instructors They are designed to certify instructors, so we all learn from each other because each participant has to teach um, four lessons, mounted lessons, and then one of those is also a ground lesson that they teach. Um, But boy, there's a lot of instant feedback afterwards from the two people doing the certifying, letting the instructor know their strengths, letting them know their challenges and things they could improve upon. So it's it's really good, I think, for just kind of the layperson, too, to get 10 instructors plus the two clinicians, so 12 instructors in the room letting you know different ways to teach stuff and to, in certain people's case, ride stuff if they're not a teacher. Very good. Where do they find it again? They go to chj.horse or chainstructors.com under the clinic tab. All right. Very good. And we're going to have a little training video, one of your training videos, and we're going to be talking a little bit about trailer maintenance and all of that stuff, right? Yes, this is Donovan Dobbs. He's one of our instructors from the state of Missouri, and he came to our um, event that we had last October, and we do all of our YouTube videos at our big conference, and he said, I think we need one on truck and trailer safety, and he is very good at this. Um, So you can listen to it today, and if you're interested, you can go to our website and find all of our YouTube videos and watch them all. Is he out of Kentucky? No, Donovan is Missouri. Okay. Because, uh, Jennifer, if you see this video, you'll see that he has our old trailer. It looked ex- I thought it was our old trailer that we had sold. It oh, looked exactly. Glenn, it Glenn, looked- listen, it might be because we filmed it at Midway University in I Kentucky. swear it was our old trailer. That's where we filmed it. <laughs> so These, it this be. is a Midway truck and trailer, so maybe. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is a safety trailer check video brought to you by Certified Horsemanship Association. My name is Donovan Dobbs. We have here today uh, a two-horse slant trailer. Uh, we're going to talk about some things you need to check before you put your horse in the trailer to make sure that the trailer is safe uh, for your horse when you travel. Don't make sure you're not going to break down on the road and be stranded with your horse on the side of a road. So first of all, we're going to start here at the trailer hitch. And they have a bunch of different models of hitches. One thing I want to make sure you check to make sure of, make sure you have the right ball for the trailer you have. Some balls are two inches, some are two and five eighths. Make sure that before you hook the trailer to your truck, that you have the right size ball. Also, this trailer here has the mechanism for a lighting. This trailer also has a brake system. So you make sure that those are properly connected to your truck. This trailer also has safety chains attached. Uh, make sure your trailer does have safety chains. Uh, I would advise that never driving a trailer that does not have safety chains on it. I know there's a lot of old trailers on the market and they're cheap, but cheap 
sometimes means you or your horse are going to get hurt and we don't want that also want to make sure that uh, how the hitch is hooked to your truck is properly done because you want to make sure that this is attached to the frame and not to the bumper of the trailer your, your truck because if it's attached just to the bumper of your truck it's going to be far weaker than if it's attached to the frame of your truck also kind of while we're here by the truck make sure that your vehicle that is towing the trailer is properly rated for the weight of your trailer. Uh, this is a half ton vehicle, which is more than adequate to pull this size trailer. But if we put a gooseneck trailer uh, on this half ton vehicle, it would probably not be safe because it would not, it would exceed the gross weight of uh, the truck. Any manufacturer of your truck or vehicle will tell you what it, is the gross weight it can carry. Also, this has a uh, clamp that comes over the uh, spring mechanism for the trailer. Make sure it's properly latched. This trailer also has a little safety chain that will prevent that uh, clip from falling back, which is going to keep the uh, hitch attached to your trailer. Moving on to uh, the back of the trailer, the next thing we want to always make sure to check is the tires. Uh, the first thing you obviously want to make sure that the tires have sufficiently tread uh, on them we don't bald tires that can come apart make sure also that the tires that you have put on here are trailer tires and not car tires uh, they're built differently uh, what they can carry is differently so make sure that when you have your tires put on that they are for a trailer and not for a vehicle one of the also thing you want to make sure that you always check your make sure your lug nuts are properly secured on your trailer uh, something that I, is neglected a lot, greased at least once a year. Uh, that helps keep when you're running and moving that your axles don't overheat. If your axles overheat, they will freeze, which means your vehicle will stop and you'll be stranded on the side of a road uh, with a horse, which is obviously a very unsafe situation. Besides uh, making sure that your tires on your trailer are in good condition, you also want to make sure that your spare tire is in good condition as well. You need to check it on a regular basis, basis to make sure it is properly inflated. Uh, that the tread wear is good on it and that you can easily uh, remove it from your trailer. Next we're going to come back to the back of the trailer to make sure uh, that it is safe and everything's properly working. Uh, this you'll probably need an assistant. You need to make sure that your trailer lights and your trailer brakes are properly working. Obviously you need to have someone in the vehicle turning right, left, hit the brake to make sure they are working. Also make sure that at night your running lights, which are up here, and on the side of your trailer also properly working. The next thing we also want to make sure that this is easy to move, that it's not rusted up. One of the very most important thing is the floor of your trailer. This trailer here has a good non-slip mat in it to keep your horse from moving around. If you do have mats that you lift up the mats and check the floor of your trailer. This trailer has wood uh, wood can obviously, even though this is treated lumber on here, can decay because of the feces and the moisture from driving, uh, road grime. Uh, these will, over time, uh, become uh, damaged and will need to be replaced. And even with this mat on there, horses can push foot through there and then you'll severely damage your horse if they go through the bottom of your floor when your vehicle's traveling. This particular trailer is a uh, two-horse slant load trailer which has a divider dividing the horses. You want them up and it works, that it moves, that there's no rust or anything on this. 
I like to go to the front of the trailer, make sure there's nothing on, on your interior wall, on your divider that can slip or cut your horse when you're loading them in there. Make sure that your ties that you can tie your horse to are secured to your trailer. Now this is a different trailer than the one that we were previously looking at. This is a gooseneck trailer. Uh, a goodness, gooseneck trailer uh, is attached uh, to the frame of the vehicle uh, at the axles. It's designed to be able to carry a greater weight uh, than a bumper hitch, which is that one. But we have some of the same concerns. We want to make sure that the ball that's in the back of the trailer uh, is properly connected to the trailer uh, by a reputable person, that uh, there are safety chains, and that the safety chains are connected properly, that your electrical hookup is properly uh, working, and that the cord from the trailer uh, to the truck is properly uh, working. And again, the same thing, we want to make sure that this vehicle uh, is sufficient uh, strength uh, to be able to carry a trailer of the size that you're pulling. Uh, just because you have a gooseneck doesn't mean you can pull any gooseneck trailer. Uh, you still have to worry about what's the gross weight of the trailer because goosenecks can go from uh, this one's a two horse or three horse load trailer to six or eight. Uh, so you need to make sure that your vehicle uh, can properly and safely carry what you need. Also on a gooseneck, you still need to make sure everything we did on the smaller trailer, make sure your tires are in good working order, make sure uh, your hinges work, make sure that your floor is, is good and safe for you and your horse. This trailer safety video has been brought to you by Certified Horsemanship Association. So now I got to ask a question. Um, other than when you buy the trailer new, does anybody ever have a working battery that's attached to the hitch? Safety first, Glenn. <laughs> Just asking, and we actually did. Uh, we actually did use our chains once when the uh, when the hitch came uh, disconnected from the bottom of the truck. I don't remember what happened exactly, but uh, the hitch came disconnected from the bottom of the truck, and it hit this the two horse tag along hit the safety chains, and uh, that's quite an experience, by the way, when you're in the truck and that happens. Ooh. Fortunately, we were hauling furniture and not horses, um, and we managed to get pulled off to the side of the road before it all became detached. But I always wondered those little chains, are they really going to hold a gooseneck heavy trailer to your truck if the ball comes off? I have my doubts. Yeah, but that's so great that the chains helped you in your situation. Yeah, they did. I mean, that trailer, trailer was bouncing around. <laughs> it was kind of a... It was a, it was a, not a good situation, but fortunately we were on a back road and we were not hauling horses. But, you know, we've all had uh, incidents with trailers over the years for sure. So, you know, dig your trailer out and make sure that uh, it is uh, safe to drive in the spring. Maybe wait till the snow melts and then take a look at it. Well, I think that's the key, you know, is making sure about that, um, because we have a great place here that we take our trailers to, and some of us do it once a year, some of us do it more like once every three or four years, but we actually take in our trailer, and they do kind of an overhaul and check everything out, and the price isn't bad, and then you kind of know, all right, everything's good before I start my busy summer. And the bearings are one of the most, getting the bearings packed is probably one of the most yes. important things, because you will shear an axle. Seen that happen, too. <clears throat> and then the tire rolls across the highway. Not that it happened on our trailer. No. No. No, not, not on ours. How about retraining horses? 
Let's talk a little bit about yes. that. Yes. So now you're going to have to find that trailer, get that trailer all ready to go so that you can go get that horse to either retrain it yourself or well, to put it in your program once it's all retrained. I will tell you that they had a Mustang event here in Ocala. They actually brought, what was it, Jennifer, 60 or 80 Mustangs? Yeah, somewhere around there, about 60. Yeah. And well, I think there were 10 mules and donkeys also, and they adopted every single one out. Awesome. Really? Every single one. According to Denise, everyone went. So, uh, isn't that cool? That's really cool. Yeah, and some of them were the hard-to-place kind that they were basically giving away. Did anybody would take them? Um, right. So, they, they all went, too. But, uh, yeah, so... So that was that was great. I think I think on the East Coast we don't have as many adoption centers. So when they bring them to locations like Ocala, I th- it's an opportunity for somebody to do it easily, as opposed to driving to Montana, you know, to get your Mustang. So I think that that well, that's a good Oca- outreach. In Ocala, there are every, every other person here has horses. Yes, but it, but it's harder, you know, in Ocala because there's no center near here. So um, it it just made it easier, and it was a good thing to do. All right, sorry. I just wanted to give you a good success story from the weekend. Oh, I think that's so great. No, and this whole retraining, you know, it can come from a variety of places. Like, Jen, I know that you have retrained horses that were riding horses to drive or driving horses to ride. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that process? Oh, golly. the um, For being a rider, I have always found that taking a driving horse and teaching it to ride much easier than the other way around. I suspect someone who is a professional or experienced driver would say quite the opposite. But when you take a horse that's been trained to drive and get on its back, two thirds of what it needs to know is already there. He knows how to steer and stop and turn and balance himself. He knows about girths. Um, Believe it or not. Yes. He does know about weight on his back because at, at least more than likely he does, because at some point if he's ever been a, in any two wheeled vehicle, the uh, the two wheeled cart the weight of the cart is on the horse's back so so much of that is there um, so it's it's a case of more than anything else teaching them what leg aids are because that's the one area they don't get because obviously there's no legs between the traces um, so that's a, a pretty straightforward process uh, what I always do is start them out with as much of what they're familiar with as I can. So if they're used to going in a blind bridle, which is a bridle with blinders or blinkers on it, that's what they get. If they're used to wearing an overcheck, um, which is if you're a racing standard bread, you're used to wearing an overcheck, which keeps the horse from diving his head down and breaking gait during a race or in uh, training, he would wear one of those uh, so that I don't change it all at one time. And just kind of go from there. It's like retraining a horse that's been ridden English to go Western or vice versa. You change as few things as possible in small little increments. And I've done it with, I can't tell you how many standard breads. We had lots and lots of them up in Pennsylvania early on in my horse life. And uh, to great success, partly because standard breads are just, in my opinion, easy to train anyway. Uh, The ones I've taken where you take and go from riding to driving have been most successful when I get help from somebody who's an experienced driver uh, because the horse's experience level and what he, the way you train a, a riding horse, he feels things from behind like a crupper or the breaching or the racket of the carriage. They are going to tend to want to move away from that 
having had experience with flags behind them that say move along or a crop or a stick that taps them on the hindquarters that say move along. So their experience is a little bit different, but it, it's, it's not rocket science. It's incremental. It's what, you know, listening to what the horse has to say. And when you get, feel like you're in above your head, which I do sometimes when I'm trying to train a driving horse, uh, you get help. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, I love about that. That makes so much sense because your driving horses talk about direct pressure, right? That's what it is. So I bet they do great when you go to direct pressure bits on them and you do more of the English kind of stuff and whatnot. It might be a little bit harder than to have them go Western and have more leverage um, eventually bits in their mouth. But you know, then you just transition them from English riding to Western riding, just like you said, many ways of transitioning. Yeah. The the hardest thing I've found with them, and it's mostly with the racing standard breads, is trying to figure out how to get them to bend through their body because the particular type of driving they do on a racetrack, they don't really bend their body. But if you were to take a horse that has been trained to drive to do CDEs, combined driving events, which is eventing for driving horses, they wouldn't have that same obstacle because they've been taught to bend through their body from the get-go. So it's not necessarily a driving issue, which is more of the type of driving. For example, scooter who was, he had the driving basics when we got him. He had a harness on and he knew how to pull and he knew how to wear, have the, the shaft on him. So and for, for new that. listeners, that's our but little, little 12 and a half hand hackney pony. Go ahead. That's our little hackney pony. He did not have any issues with bending through his body because he didn't go through the type of training that says you stay straight all of the time. So when we got to the point where we had to bend a little bit to make turns, it was hard for him because it's hard for Scooter to learn anything. He's a little turd. <laughs> he didn't have any untraining to do. And, and that's probably the place I've noticed most that untraining needs to happen because they've really been taught, don't bend your body. And you're going, oh, yes, you do now. They go, no, it's not what I do. <laughs> that is such a good point. And for those that don't know a lot about driving out there, there are so many different types of driving, just like there's so many different types of riding that you can't just say, oh, yeah. you know, I've driven this one kind, I'm done. No, lots of differences. So that's a great point to bring up Absolutely. about bending and not bending. You know, I never thought of it that way, Christy. That's an excellent point. But you're right. There's coaching, which is the kind you see with the great big fancy antique wagons and the guy driving with the top hat. There's CDE or combined driving. There is racing and so, and you're right, the, the training techniques you, and then they're showing, which is the horses you see at quarter horse shows or mini shows or Arabian shows that are driven in their ring, their rail class. So there's, it's almost like English and Western and rodeo and dressage within the riding community. I never thought of it that way. Good point. That's pretty cool. That's one thing that's so good, I think, about the horse industry. The second we start thinking we're all cool, yeah, humility comes right back (laughs) the minute you change anything. That's why we've been able to do these shows for 10 years and really not repeat ourselves much. Yes, crazy, huh? Crazy. Yeah, that's what everybody said. Well, you're going to do these shows, you're going to run out of things to talk about. Nope. Only people that say that are non-horse people. Yes. You know, that's why, uh, so much that's, to talk about. that's right. Oh. That's why people are still paying hundreds and thousands of dollars to go to clinics. Uh, that's true. <laughs> it'll never end. It never ends. <laughs> How about you? What have you retrained? You know, I have started, um, a couple of horses 
And that is quite the process. And um, I've enjoyed it very much. I don't know if I'd do it now, uh, just because, you know, as we get older, there's some parts of it that are kind of demanding, unless it's a horse that's pretty easy to start. But I'll tell you, if you do a lot of groundwork, they should be pretty easy to start. You just have to have the patience and the time. But I've, I've really enjoyed that. And both of the horses that I've started ended up being lesson horses for me, and then went on to be sold to one of my students to be, uh, one of them became a little 4-H show horse, and the other one became her trail horse. So I've, I've enjoyed that. I know we've, uh, we've done a couple of horses from English to Western, and the one of them really had a tough time with neck reining. Just didn't get it. I mean, just that was the toughest part for, for that particular horse was to get the neck reining. It's just not how it was done in that horse's mind, you know? So, that, so there are some challenges when you're <clears throat> with certain horses with certain things. Uh, that can be worked through. It just takes a little patience and time. Yeah, that's the key. I think that they all are bright enough to be able to figure it out, but you just have to have that time. You can't be a weekend warrior and try to train or retrain a horse. Sorry, people. That is just not going to happen. You've got to do it Monday through Friday, too. I mean, you'll get get lucky with some horses that just pick it up, you know, the quick learners. That is true. Yeah, you get some, just like people. There are quick learners, and there are not so quick learners like me, who takes a long (laughs) time to figure it out, you know. So it took me a long time to figure out neck reining, too. Uh, but it's true. I mean, it, it, it's just, you need the patience and the time. Yes. You know, <clears throat> uh, and all the big trainers that you see, that's what they'll tell you. You know, they'll tell you, I've been working on this one thing for three months. You know, and it's just because they're letting the horse get it in their own time. They're, they're not, they're not pushing it. They're, 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 they're asking for it. Uh, but the horse is going to get it when the horse, when the light bulb comes on, the light bulb will come on. And you know that you'll know when the light bulb comes on. Uh, and it's the same same with people, for that matter. You know, same. Everybody learns at a different rate. <clears throat> Absolutely, and in a different way, right? That whole concept of people with visual, auditory, or kinesthetic, which is doing, I think the horse is very similar. You know, some horses take right away to voice commands. Others go, I don't really get what that is at all. I don't want to do that, right? So there's just a variety of different ways, too, that they learn. Yeah, it's awesome. Some of them read the manual and get it the first time. <laughs> Would that be nice? <laughs> Here's the manual. Read it. I'll be out tomorrow after yeah, your oats. Exactly. We'll yeah, I'll give you a quiz tomorrow. We'll see if you can do that half pass. <laughs> <laughs> so we have our, our Jennifer's getting our first guest on the line right now. While she is doing that, uh, I wanted to remind everybody that you can get all the past episodes of the Certified Horsemanship Association Training Tuesday on Horses in the morning go to horsesinthemorning.com and in the middle of the page there's little banners just click on the cha banner and it brings up all the past episodes in a row so you can go listen to those all at the same time and of course you can find the horses in the morning show on our app it's the simplest easiest way to listen uh just search for horse radio network in the app store ios or android all right your guest is ready We are thrilled today to have Pat Leach on. She lives in Burlington, Texas, and has trained and showed Arabians for over 40 years in Western, saddle seat, hunt seat, side saddle, dressage, and trail. She has many regional and national placings in all of those as well. She also does endurance with her horses and competitive trail and has been a riding instructor for about 30 years. She drives miniatures and has also worked with students who have gated horses and stock breeds. She is a CHA clinician and also our Region 8 Triad team member that puts on our regional conferences. Hello, Pat. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine. Very good to have you on the show. So tell us a little bit so that Glenn and Jen and I know a little bit about the area in which you live. Where exactly in the big old state of Texas is uh, your town? 
Um, it's north central Texas. We're about uh, oh, 20 miles south of Fort Worth and uh, about 30 miles southwest of Dallas. And what is winter for you? What kind of weather do you get in winter? <laughs> well, right now we're having a couple of days in the 20s, which is fairly unusual for us. Um, when it freezes, it's usually unfrozen by noon, but uh, we've got a couple of days in a row here where it's not going to get above freezing, which means we have to do a lot of chopping water in the water trough. But it's supposed to be back in the 60s by this weekend, so it won't last long. That is nice. So do a lot of people have just outdoor arenas then? You don't have to worry about a bunch of indoor arenas? No, we don't have. Hardly anybody has an indoor arena, so it's, it's all outdoor stuff. Yeah, see, I like that. That is nice. So tell us, Pat, a little bit about your um, background. I know a lot with the Arabians, but go ahead and share with us kind of your, your past with horses. I was one of those kids that always wanted one, but we couldn't afford one growing up. So I, uh, when I finished college, the first thing I actually bought with my own money was my first horse. It was a $750 uh, half Arab gelding and was the best riding teacher I ever had. <laughs> He, uh, yes, they are. Very much so. And what did you do with him? Everything. I just, all those things that you listed earlier, he pretty much did all of them and did them all well. And then how did you decide after college to make this your career? Well, it really wasn't my career until I retired. I, I had always trained and shown my own horses and, and kind of helping other people out with theirs. And uh, giving a few lessons here and there and, and getting paid for it. Um, then when I retired from uh, teaching, I was a speech pathologist in the public school system. And when I retired from teaching, um, I had more time to, to devote to the horses and the riding lessons. So I started doing more of that. I love that. So you've been a teacher your whole life, not only for people, but also for horses. So I think that is great. Yeah. So, Pat, let it, let our listeners know and try to explain maybe some exercises and some things that you do, for example, when you first get a new horse um, to kind of see what his training has been. What are some steps that you take? Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of the horses that, that my students get are from rescues, so we don't really know anything about their background, so we have to just kind of take it a step at a time and see where we are. Um, the first thing I want to know is, how do they feel about people in general and being touched? So um, I try touching them all over. Do they back off when you approach them? Do they seem to like to want to be petted or are they just indifferent about the whole thing? And that tells you a lot about, about their background and what, what has been done with them in the past. So that's kind of the first thing. And then um, I, I do a lot of groundwork. The older I get, the more groundwork I do. Um, Start with, I just want them to, to walk quietly beside me in a halter and lead rope. Just walk and trot and roll quietly beside me. Um, the same thing to trot. If they're doing it well at a walk, then I'll see if they will, they will trot well beside me. And I want a woe. I definitely want a woe. Woe is very important, but whatever you do. And then I work on the lunch line, uh, walk, trot, canter, and woe. And I keep them on line because a lot of these horses, if they've been taught to, quote, lunge at all. It's just been running around in a circle with somebody chasing with a whip. And I want them listening. I want them walk, trotting and, and scattering and rowing on command. So I usually do it offline so I can uh, have that kind of control with them. Um, I want to make sure that they can flex both directions and, and down, give to the halter, give to pressure to, to each side and, and to down. 
And um, I like to ground drive them to see if they understand raining, um, how hard or soft you can, you can pull on them to get them to turn. I'm going to do straight lines, circles, serpentines, and to back. And then I want to see how they, how they feel about the saddle and bridle. And when you're doing this lunging, do you ever use a bidding rig of any kind? Or do you just do free lunging with no bidding rig at all? Usually no bidding rig. I start just on the halter and lead rope. If it's a horse that is bound for the show ring, then eventually when they get further along in their training, you can put a little, I'll put a little bidding rig on just a, a makeshift one, just to, to start teaching them to flex and, and drop their head a little bit. But most of them know. I don't, and at this stage, definitely not. I just, I want them to be relaxed and happy and just carrying around, getting their head wherever they need to to get their balance. And I'm with you. I think groundwork is so key. And I think, you know, more and more people now are educating about the importance of groundwork. If you think about it, most of the time we're on the ground with our horses. We don't unfortunately get as much time in the saddle as we'd all like. So we're on the ground with them doing whatever it is that we're doing. And I'll tell you, your vets and farriers will appreciate you if you do groundwork with your horses, because that'll make their life a whole lot easier when they come out and do what they need to do with them. So that's really good. Is there anything else um, groundwork specific that you want to talk about before we move into the mounted exercises? Um, well, let's see. I think that the, the main thing and with the, the groundwork and the mounted both is, is it's very important to remember that it's the release that teaches. And you've got to, especially with horses that you're trying to retrain, they, they don't they don't understand cues a lot of the time because they were given the cue and then they did what the rider was telling them and the, the cue didn't go away. So they, they quit paying attention to it. So you have to be really, really quick with these horses about as soon as they give you any, any motion toward the response you want, you've got to get off the cue. You've got to release the range. You've got to get your leg off of them. So they begin to understand that, yes, it does mean something. And if I do this, then she quits, quits pushing on me. So that's, I mean, it's very important. Um, moving away from pressure is very important. Um, and again, you start with a very light, light pressure and uh, wait for them to move. And as soon as they move, you've got to release it because it's, it's a safety issue as well as just a convenience issue. When you're saddling or, or grooming or anytime you're in rather close quarters with them, you, you need them to move that rear over and move their front end over just from a light touch. Um, I think uh, the I do a lot of the the T touch the Linda Tellington Jones T touch stuff with the horses that's um, girthy or uh, worried about some part of his body. A lot of them are ear shy or head shy, and it's just a little circles with your fingers, and you, you start approaching the part that they don't like. And if they start getting twitchy about it, then you retreat with your fingers, and you go back again. And it's not going to happen overnight, but that's the easiest and calmest way to get them over being worried about being touched in some particular part of their body. And a lot of them are very girthy, so I usually have to do a lot of that around the, around the girth uh, area because they, they worry about they've been girthed up too tight too quickly so much that they're, they're defensive about it, and you can't blame them because it hurts. So you do a lot of that around the girth area and be very careful about how you, about how you tighten the girth until they, get, until they get over being afraid of it. Do you have um, any specific examples of horses that you've worked with that maybe have come in and, 
you found that they either have no training, so you've started them from scratch, or that they you are definitely retraining them from a certain discipline to something else, um, for example, to become a good lesson horse or whatever the case may be. Any particular examples of horses to bring up? Pretty much all of them. We pretty much start from the beginning and, and work our way up. But I did have one little horse that was very interesting. We were, I was working at the therapeutic center, and... Um, this uh, riding school was uh, donating all of their horses. They were going out of business and they were donating other horses. So we went to see if we could find some and a couple that we could, thought we could probably retrain. And we asked if they had anything else. And he said, well, there's this little Arab gelding out in the pasture, but he's crazy. You won't want him. Even our head instructor can't ride him. So we went out to look at him and he comes over and puts his head on my shoulder. Well, at this point, he's going home with us regardless. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but, um, yes. We took him back to the to the arena, and um, they, the guy was, was had him said, well, when they donated him to us, they said he was like Western Pleasure Champion at Scottsdale or someplace, but, but he's crazy. We can't ride him. I had to start to continue on him, and I'm thinking, Western Pleasure Champion at Scottsdale. That's one of the premier Arab shows. If he was Western Pleasure at Scottsdale, this horse is solid. So I took him over to the fence. Like, they just had one saddle, and they were using another horse. I'm just started to slip on him, on him bareback, and the guy's having a fit that he's going to kill me. And I get on him bareback, and we walk and jog around the arena. No problem. He's a little chance. He's a little unsure of himself, but, you know, no, no problem. He's fine. So I get to the saddle and put the saddle on him. And I get back on him, and I think, hmm, Western Pleasure Champion, I don't think so. So I sat back in the saddle and raised my hands, basically went into a saddle seat position, and you could feel that little horse relaxed. He just went like, oh, yeah, I understand this. And he set his head, and he gave us a beautiful work. And we always took one of our volunteers with us that didn't ride very well, because a lot of times the horse would do it for us and not for, for somebody else. And I said, get on him. And we got, she's going, oh, you know, I said, you're crazy. I said, no, just get on him. Just do exactly what I say, but get on him. And she rode him for a minute, and she comes back grinning from ear to ear, and just like power steering. And we took him home. He didn't make a therapy horse because he was a little hyper for that. But I used him as a school. I, I bought him from them, and I used him as a school horse for years. Horse never put a foot wrong, never did anything wrong, never did anything scary. And it was just its one of those cases where sometimes we're supposed to be the brains of this outfit, and we have to figure it out. I doubt sometimes it was a brain. Anyway. But he, uh, as soon as he understood, as soon as we put him in a frame that he understood, he was fantastic. And I think sometimes we may do that to a horse. We'll get one and we're determined he's going to do a certain thing or, or obey our cues, whatever those cues are. And he doesn't. And if you figure out what his cues are, <clears throat> a lot of times there's not really any retraining. You're just going to do it the way that he was originally trained. And this little horse is a perfect example of that. Pat, that is a great story because, boy, is there a difference between Western pleasure, long and low and no contact and saddle seat up and back and lots of contact. So that's that's just a great story of, oh, my gosh, those, that, those are so different disciplines. And there's so many breeds like the Arabians that do so many things that that's so great that you knew what saddle seat was and English pleasure. And you were able to kind of get him into that frame and make him happy. What a cool story. So what are some key mounted exercises that you do when you see that there are holes in a horse's training? I always start out, um, again, I want him to stand when I get on him. And that, again, is just, it takes, it takes time sometimes because a lot of it actually been trained that when you put a foot in the stirrup, they're going. 
So you have to kind of kind of work on that. And I just kind of, sometimes I'll just stand beside them and jump up and down until they're still with that. And then I raise my foot like I'm going to put it in the stirrup and wait on them to get still and put it down and pick it up and put it down. And then put a foot in the stirrup and kind of bounce up and down on them and keep doing that until they get still. And then when they can, they can handle all that, I go ahead and get on. And I want to do it from both sides. I insist that all of my horses, all of my students' horses do mounting, dismounting, tacking, whatever, from, from both sides because it makes life a lot easier, especially when you're, when you're trail running. Um, so, um, um, then I want them to walk off, which I just just walking. It's start out at a walk and do straight lines, circles, serpentines. If they're doing that well and relaxed, then we'll do it at a trot. If they're doing that well and relaxed, we'll do it at a canter. I want a good halt in the back. And I want them to do their laterals. I want them to be able to move their haunches and to move their forehands. So I check check all of that to see if they can, if they do all of that. And um, uh, that that's pretty much the basics. If they can do all that, then I'm pretty comfortable with them. That's great. And, and then what do you? Time, go ahead. I'm sorry. At any time, at any time during that, that I feel they're getting nervous or they're getting worried about it. Then you just don't take the next step. Like if they're a little upset at a trot, then I don't canter yet. I keep it at a trot until they're relaxed, and then then we'll try canter later. And what are certain things, traits in the horse that you're looking for that would make a good school horse or a lesson horse for um, your program? Um, lesson horses, they've got to be quiet. So I check and see what kinds of things they might be afraid of. We do a lot of desensitization stuff, but I do that with my other horses too. I want them comfortable with pretty much everything. Um, I want them, um, with a lesson horse, I don't necessarily want them as light as I do my horses. With my horses, my students, my private student horses, I want them uh, very light. You can just touch them with a leg or, or squeeze them a little bit or, or move your seat and they understand and they, and they will do whatever you're asking them to do. With lesson horses, I don't want them that light. I, we don't just we just don't spend that much time on it um, because you know a beginner student is going to shift their weight in the saddle. They're going to put a leg on them when they don't mean to. And if this horse is upper level dressage, he's going to be doing flying changes down the down the rail and scare the kid to death and frustrate him. So I don't want them that light, uh, except for for my horses. But the, the, the school horses, I I don't worry too much about that kind of lightness. I mean, I don't want them to have to be kicked hard and pulled on, but not as light as I want my, my regular horses. And I think that's a wonderful way to think about it because that's absolutely true. When you're first learning how to ride, you're going to accidentally bump them maybe with the reins as you're learning how to go up and down to the beat of the trot with posting. You might accidentally over squeeze them. You know, when you first, I know for me, one of the scariest things to teach is first canter because if you're teaching first canter, most of the time the students are going to grip with their low leg. And if the horse is just like, yeah, they're just holding on, that's great. Versus if the horse is like, oh, you want hand gallop? No, not yet. <laughs> That's a really good way yep, to put it, Pat. <laughs> well, we uh, so, so for my personal. Yeah, go ahead. So for my personal horses, I, I want them also side passing both directions. I want their stop off their haunches, not falling on their forehand. Um, and uh, well, in both of them, this the school horses and my private horses both. I want them going over tarps and plastic and you know, shaking a plastic bag at them and going over bridges and, and all of that kind of thing. And before you do any of this mounted, do you do it on the ground? Like you'll take them over the tarp on the ground first? 
Oh yeah, definitely. So the jumping, the the any of the any of the spooky stuff, all of that is done from the ground, so they don't care, and <laughs> then we'll get it from on top of them. Very good. Well, we so appreciate Pat you being on today. Can you go ahead and let our listeners know where they can find you? Um, the CHA instructor uh, website, or I'm on Facebook. I don't have like a business page or anything, but if if they can somehow indicate to me, if they do a friend request and somehow indicate that they heard it from this program, then um, I'll send them and we can do it that way. Very good. And could you go ahead and spell your name for everybody so they know how to find you on Facebook? Oh, okay. Uh, Pat Leach, L-E-A-C-H. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for being on the show today. And, you know, I know 20 degrees is cold, but here in Colorado, I think we're six this morning and we're going to get up to a high of 12. So there's that. But, you know, we all choose to live where we choose to live. And boy, here we got to have an indoor arena. So I'm a little jealous. Well, the other part of that, too, is uh, we're not prepared for it. When it's 20 here, we, we, you know, the pipes aren't made for it. We don't have heaters in the water tank. It's, it's we just, we're not, it happens two or three times a year, so we're not prepared. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> well, I hope to see you in Colorado at our international conference. And for anyone else listening, you can meet a lot of the people that have been on the show at our international conferences in the fall. Glenn and Jen were there last year, got to come and be a part and do the radio show live from there, which was awesome. This year, we're going to be up in Fort Collins, Colorado at uh, Colorado State University. So thanks again, Pat, for being on the show. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Pat. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I did see that Texas was getting some snow and lost some power and things yesterday. So it happens there, too. Um, but you're, she's right. We just go up to 70 then the next day. and It's better. <laughs> so did you two ever have... Yeah. Did you two ever have a horse that came to you knowing one thing, you tried to do something else, kind of like her story? I uh, love her Jennifer story. Jennifer has one. I remember the quarter horse, Jennifer? Tell them about the quarter horse that you got in. I I do. We knew nothing about we that horse, right, when a, we got it? We, we knew Zip. We bought her at a, a low-end, rinky-dink little auction. We bought her really cheap, but she was good age, good-looking, yada, yada, yada. We thought, well, she could do something. So got her home. And I'm starting to ride her around. and English, she's, right? She's kind of hot. Yeah, well, yeah, I, w- I did the eventing thing. So uh, I'm trying to get her to do some cross rails and some ground poles. And, boy, she has flying changes down, Pat, so that was really cool. But working trot was a little tough. Um, had a lot of trouble because she would back off the bit all the time. Well, she probably was ridden western. She's used to having a curb bit in her mouth, which is not something you ride into. You, you ride on a loose rein. So we were working on that. We were trying to get the, the long and low thing. And I had gotten her figured out to the point that I felt like I knew her well enough to uh, get her resold because that was the whole point. It was trying to, to resell her and help keep the lights on. And I had and I had papers on her. So when I put the ad out in the newspaper so a long time ago, I put her name in there and that she was a registered quarter horse. And I had a fellow come out and look at her and he said, well, do you have a Western saddle? Nope, don't have one of those. You have to bring your own along. And I discovered, he put the tack on the horse, and he said, well, and I said, well I'll get up and ride her first so I, you can see what she looks like. And I put the Western saddle on her, and he brought a Western bridle along. And he said, well, I'm looking for a barrel horse. Well, she's quick. Might make work for a barrel horse. But she was like 15, 17 years old. She was 
get getting towards that senior citizen age. So I thought, well, that's interesting. He's looking for a barrel prospect at this age group, but maybe he's looking for something at that beginner barrel horse level that isn't, you know, isn't going to take off too fast. Because you know, you would assume that something in the 17 years old would go, you know, I'm not in a big hurry. Well, I discovered that she was in a hurry. We had one, we had two barrels because we used to make them into jumps. So we put one barrel out there all by itself. And he said, well, let's, let's just show me if she'll go around a barrel. And I should have known better because he was a cowboy with a sense of humor. And I had her canter down to the barrel and I got about three strides from the barrel and I felt her lean a little bit. And when I blinked my eyes, we had done a U-turn around the barrel and had been shot out of a cannon. <laughs> I, I literally was, I literally got, she went, she took off so fast. My butt was past the cantle of the sack. <laughs> oh, impressive you stayed I up guess there. I guess so. <laughs> That's awesome. We found out then that she was some no- kind of champ or something, right? She had been the state champion in some division. I don't understand the the nuances of barrel racing, but there are different divisions and levels. She had been a state champion like three or four years prior to that. Wow. And somehow (laughs) ended up on, you know, that that track towards the meat truck where we picked her up at the uh, low-end auction, and this guy recognized her name. So he he picked her up for a song, and he said, well, I just want something that I can – I can take out once in a while. I don't, I don't compete very regularly and she was getting well, up in her years. So perfect. he took her home and they had a great time barrel racing. <laughs> That's a good story. I love that. That horse well, was never going to go English. No, <laughs> never. no, no, thank you. For that. <laughs> we bought another one at an auction. Actually, it was an Amish auction on this farm in the middle of nowhere. And they, it was a big auction. There were, there were probably a thousand Amish guys there buying horses and big prices too for some of these horses. They spend big money on their fancy driving horses. The Saturday night horses, they spend big money. There's Sunday driving horses, not so much, but the Saturday night go out to town horses, they spend a lot of money. And th- this Hackney, first Hackney I ever owned, Hackney Pony came across and was a real high stepper and, and real flashy and sold for like 900 bucks. And I wanted something that was a little faster than the one I had. So I we bought him and got him home, and then we learned out later he was the Ohio State champ in the roadster classes. Um, oh. And that pony could move. And sca- Jennifer wouldn't ride in a cart with me. <laughs> it's a scary pony to drive because it was like driving a Ferrari that really was a little bit that had bad tires and was a little bit skidding all over the road because uh, <laughs> it was used to being in the ring and we weren't driving in the ring anymore. So he was like uh, ready to go and uh, go wherever, not necessarily in a straight line. So he <laughs> was, was a fun one. <laughs> I love it. The nice though, you part know? was though, that, that little pony, when you'd hitch him up, he would stand like a statue to get hitched. Not so much when the farrier came out. When when the farrier came out, he stood like a statue on two legs, uh, straight up in the air. And the farrier really got sick of that rather quickly. I don't know why. Um, So we we discovered the value of kava kava at that point. And we would give that pony kava kava, and the pony would just stand there for the farrier from that point on. It's the only way we kept the farrier coming out and didn't fire us. (laughs) 
Yep. I'll tell you, farriers and vets, they like it when the only time that they come and see the horse, so twice a year or once every eight weeks, is not the only time that they get worked with or when they have an issue like yours did that you take care of it because, I, I, oh, bless their hearts, they're like, really? I've got to train your horse? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That little pony could stand up on two legs. I mean, he was little. He was like 12, too. But still standing up on two legs, they get up there, you know? And yeah. The, those little hooves are dangerous still. But, yeah, so there's a couple of our retraining stories that were interesting. I never did retrain that pony. We just went fast everywhere. Um, so <laughs> <Yeah>. was, <laughs> yeah. I kind of right. liked it. Nobody else did, but I kind of liked it. He only you backed me into a NASCAR ditch once. You, yeah, though. he only backed me into a ditch once. And I had another pony that was like driving a big fat station wagon at that point. She would not go anywhere fast. So when I brought, well, we had little kids that went on a carriage ride, we would take the big fat station wagon. And then when, you know, the kids that were a little older and wanted a more adventurous ride, we'd go out in the Ferrari. So it was there you fun. go. Yeah. See, that's kind of nice yeah. to have both in your that's backyard. Right. That's right. Well, uh, Jennifer, while Jennifer gets the next guest on, you are listening to Horses in the Morning. I am Glenda Geek here with Christy Landwehr, and she is from the Certified Horsemanship Association. Remind everybody while we're getting our next guest on where they can find you. Yes. So we do the third Tuesday of every month here for Training Tuesday. And then you can go to our website as well as, of course, to the Horses in the Morning website and see all the listen to all the past shows that are all recorded. And then we have wonderful webinars and YouTube videos and manuals and DVDs on all these things that we're talking about, horsemanship in general, to very specific things. If you want to come and check them out, it's CHA.horse or CHAinstructors.com if you want to find someone near you like Pat and Shelly, who we're going to have on soon, so that you can uh, go directly to them and get some kinesthetic learning going on. Well, as she's getting Shelly on, have, well, tell us about one of yours that was interesting and didn't quite yeah, go the way I you wanted. <laughs> the most interesting one was actually when I worked at the Urban Farm, which is an at-risk youth program in Denver, we would get a lot of donated horses. And we got... Um, a cowboy showed up and he looked awfully familiar to me. And I was the only one working at the time. And he says, will you come out and help me unload these horses? I'm going to donate to the program. I go, sure. And I'm looking at him going, why do I know this guy? And he introduced himself. He goes, I'm Larry. I'm like, all right, Larry, I'm Christy. So I go out there and he's unloading these horses and they're all really nice, like quarter horses. And they all kind of really know their stuff. And we get on him and we're doing some stuff. And I'm like, wow, these are really nice horses, Larry. What are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm going to be getting into the hat business soon, kind of getting out of what I was doing before. He's like, so, you know, I'm just going to donate them to the farm. Well, come to find out that this was Larry Mahan. And that he's like, you know, Milano hat guy is what he was going to go get into. And he was the you know, ex-rodeo guy. So these horses were, some of them were like, like ex-rodeo horses, like barrels and poles and things like what Jen was talking about. And some of them were the pickup horses that the rodeo guys used to use. And boy, these horses at first were a little hot. But we had, because the um, urban farm is at-risk youth, everything from beginners, intermediates, and advanced. So boy, they worked well for our advanced program. And then pretty soon we got them to the point where they were great for all of our programs. And what a great, great experience to meet him and ride with him for an afternoon while he's showing me the buttons on all these horses. That was pretty cool. That is really pretty cool. Great experience. Yeah. yeah. That is and then cool. there, we had another guy that dropped off his horse right after the polo match. He's like, all right, I'm retiring this one. And it still had like the sweat marks on from the polo match. He goes, here you go. <laughs> well, that's, that's polo style right there. That. Oh, my gosh. And unbeknownst to us, we didn't realize that, you know, the polo horses are trained to sideswipe when other horses pass them. Well, we taught a 
beginner group writing <laughs> lesson. And I would always have one of the advanced students get on, you know, and ride around. And we were trotting them all. And every time he got past, he'd try to slam himself into these other horses. <laughs> and I told the advanced writer, I go, what are you doing? She goes, I'm not doing anything. And she finally dropped the reins and he did it all by himself. So we realized really quickly he was going to be a private lesson horse only. Yeah. Yes. He liked playing bumper wow. cars. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. That could be fun so for the what, kids, though. I tell you, <laughs> all these things that you learn, though, I'm so glad that we're going down this road of realizing retraining is a big deal. And some of them, it gets so set in their ways of what they used to do, you're not going to retrain them. And others, you certainly can, and it's not a problem. But it's kind of, sometimes you just, you don't want to put the square peg in the round hole. Just yes. go with what they know. Right, exactly. Sometimes yeah. you got to deal with what, they, what they're comfortable with and what they've learned. Because, you know, some of us that get older, it's hard to retrain us. <laughs> you think, Glad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Shelly's ready. Wonderful. All right, I'm excited to introduce Shelly. Shelly's been on our show before. Shelly Hensley lives in Maxburg, Iowa, and has spent the last 20 years in the equine industry as a riding instructor. Her adventures with horses have led her to work in camping industry with the YMCA and the Girl Scouts. And she and her husband, Randy, who's a certified farrier, just recently opened H. Mill Iron Horsemanship at their home. They spend a lot of time rehabilitating horses, and they're going to have horses available to others soon. Uh, they're also heavily involved in the Miniature Rodeo Association that I certainly want to hear more about. And she is also a CHA clinician for us on our board and a past state rep. Hello, Shelly. How are you? Good morning. I am fantastic. How are y'all doing this morning? Doing all right today. So I need to know more yeah. about TMRA. I don't know about that. So tell us about that. Well, the TMRA is really kind of a cool thing that is happening in the sport of rodeo, and it is a youth organization. Um, they, they, they build riders and confidence. Their, their tagline is, we build confidence eight seconds at a time. And it's, it's teaching these young kids about the foundational sports of rodeo as far as like your bareback riding, your, your saddle bronc riding, and your bull riding. And we've got, you know, the barrel racing for the girls. And you're thinking, you are kidding me. You're putting these kids on bucking horses and bucking bulls. Well, you know, the miniature versions of those. So it's, these kids are learning um, this part of the sport on ponies, small horses. There's a such thing called a miniature bull. I had no clue that this was out there. Um, and how Randy and I got hooked up is he worked years ago as a rodeo pickup man. Um, he was contacted by a friend that said, you know, we, we need, a, we need pickup men for this sport, you know, because part of the safety in the arena is teaching these kids how to get from their bronc to the pickup man. And so my husband said, how do you feel about training pickup horses? And I said, do what? And so we started down that road last year. And next thing you know, um, it has progressed to, we went to their national finals last fall. Um, we've got another gig with them this year. And it has opened all sorts of doors for me to work with young riders and really bring the horsemanship um, and to piggyback on the animal care uh, for their barrel horses and for the bucking stock. And we are just having a great time. So could I ask a clarification? So then Little Britches, so what's the difference then between it? Little Britches doesn't use the ponies then. Is, is, is that correct? They're going to use... I, I, I'm confused. I'm excited and I'm confused. Well, yeah, I was okay, thinking let, that too because we've talked bit. about so, no, Little Bridges. Little Bridges is, right. And, and Johnny Hopkins is um, the 
contractor that we work for, and he actually is bringing the Little Britches franchise back to Iowa because it hasn't been alive here in many, many years. And the, the Miniature Rodeo Association is something that he and his family started. And we've got, we've got little bitty kids. We've got um, peewees, you know, so little bitty kids, four and five years old, that are learning the sport. You know, they want to ride rough stock. And they've got their helmets on and their vests on and the bullfighters are in the arena and you get something like, um, I think his name is Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is, is this little bull. They put him on and he comes out and walks around the arena with a little kid on him and, and they get to learn <laughs> bull riding, I, but he's just kind of walking around. You know, Shelly, when you said the Miniature Rodeo Association, all I could think of is you're using minis. And you use minis for everything. You little using little minis for barrel racing. Using little minis for little wild minis for uh, coming out of the chutes. I just had minis pictured doing all of these jobs. Uh, you know what? Yeah, that would be pretty close in some of the some of the um, divisions. We have a lead line class for our little bitty barrel racers, and what it is is their parents are out there leading their mini or their pony or whatever whatever horse they're riding and the parent is helping them through the lead line um, portion of it. And these kids are, are out there learning the pattern. And then as time goes on, they're graduating, you know, to their own horse, they're graduating to bigger horses. They're, you know, if there are peewee bronc riders, they are graduating to different ponies or small horses as they continue through the ranks. Can you imagine how so many awes putting... come from the stands during a miniature rodeo show? It'd be awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, our animal athletes are, uh, they're, they're epic and, you know, they, they, there are pictures all over the internet, you know, with these, you know, these, these quote unquote bronks and, you know, little Henry started the peewee bareback. He's our first bareback bronc, little Henry, little fuzzball with four legs, just gets out there and totes his kid around. And, um, you know, he's, he's the, the big bad bronc. <laughs> I wish I had about known it. about this. Oh, I'm so, because my kids, when, when Kyle was two and a half, he was in mutton busting. And I remember all the other moms looking yeah. at me because the announcer goes that in the arena now, Kyle Landwehr from Aurora, Colorado, he's two and a half. <laughs> and everyone went, what? And I went, oh yeah, not a problem. And then Sean did it. And then yeah. after Mutton Festin was over, they really didn't have anything because I didn't want to put them on these big old things. And I just didn't feel like right. there was a good next step. And our little britches, it was kind of far away from my house and whatever. Oh, I wish I had known about this. How exciting. There are other options out there now. And, you know, they we have a, a miniature horse, like a wild miniature horse race. You know, just like they do at Calgary and some of these big rodeos where, you have a team that has to, you know, go out and you, you have somebody is holding the rope and then somebody's got to get a hold of the, the mini and then somebody's got to get on and they've got to ride it for so many seconds. Well, we also do that with miniature donkeys. And I'm not talking about the cute, fuzzy, cookie-eating miniature donkeys. Like, when the miniature donkeys come out for the, for the wild donkey race or the wild burl race, we leave. We get out of the way with the pickup horses. We're like, okay, we're we're done. We're getting out. And uh, it gets pretty exciting and the kids have a great time and it's teaching them camaraderie and respect, you know, how do you take care of the buck and stock? And, and, you know, they're very um, patriotic and, you know, we're, we're always have a program in the beginning, you know, of singing the national anthem and 
saying our prayers and, you know, what does it take to be a cowboy or a cowgirl or the essence of? I am so glad, Shelly, that you put this in your bio. And I know we're off topic, but that was really fun and exciting to talk about. So thank you for putting that in there. You're I've welcome. known you for years and I didn't even know about that. So that's just so cool. So, all right. Well, now let's go ahead and jump into the topic here for those that are listening sure. and saying, when are they going to get to the meat of this deal? Um, yes. I know that <laughs> you've had many, many backgrounds with many, many different breeds and disciplines. Um, but I would love to start by talking about this acronym that we hear a lot called the OTTB, the Off the Track Thoroughbred, because I know you have a great story um, here and they're that's something that we haven't really gone down the road yet. And there's of course a lot in regards to them. So jump on in there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had a fascination with thoroughbreds when I was a little girl, you know, I was born on the 5th of May and for many years I was convinced that they ran the Kentucky Derby in honor of my birthday because you know, it was all about me. Right. And so it, it really took my parents a long time to convince me that Shelly, that's not really the case. And so I loved thoroughbreds. I loved racehorses. I loved, I loved the breed. And of course, I don't really think there's a breed out there that I don't love, but there was something special about the thoroughbred to me. And so um, when I was in college uh, in the late 90s, you know, I kind of ran out of financial aid and it wasn't going really well. And so I <laughs> quit college and I, I ran, it was like going away and joining the circus. I got a job on the backside of Bluegrass Downs in Paducah, Kentucky. And I quit school and I went to work as a groom on the track. And I I held that job for two weeks before I told my parents what I had done. And that led to six years of working deep in the racing industry. And so really seeing it from both sides, from being a fan to getting on the backside and, and seeing what goes into training and that sort of thing. And I took my first horse off the track, um, probably about 1998 and um, had to rehabilitate him and, and put some time and training onto him. And he had a talent for turning really quickly. So a friend of mine said, why don't you teach him to run barrels and poles? And well, to be honest with you, I was not a barrel racer. Like I had played around with Cloverleaf before at some fun shows, but as far as starting a barrel horse, I had no clue. So I got a book and <laughs> I would read the book and look at the exercise. And, you know, put the book on the first barrel and go out there and, you know, pin it down with a rock so my book didn't blow away and exercise the horse. And that's how that started. He was a horse by the name of Mr. One Shot. And One Shot kind of started it all for me um, to get a hold of these horses that I could see potential in, um, that they might not be real talented on the track as a racehorse, but they, they could definitely be suitable in other areas. And so that's kind of what started it all right there. Well, and I love that. And I know that you have um, a special one in the barn now that you want to talk about here in a bit. But when you first get a new horse, what are the first things, just specific exercises that you do with that horse to see what its training has been? Let's say start on the ground and kind of give our listeners some idea of those specific exercises. Sure. You know, when when they first come to us, um, I find myself watching them a lot. I watch them um, you know, during turnout there, of course, they're in quarantine. I want to see if they're responding, you know, to outward influences or if they're reacting. I look at one as being a, a positive versus a not so positive. I want to see that horse's level of confidence. Are they curious in me? Are they looking for me to come to them or do they kind of want to hide in the corner? And, and so that's kind of where I start. And then when I 
go in, I keep it real basic. You know, what do they know? I ask a series of questions. It's kind of like dating. You have to ask all the questions to get to know, you know, your, your prospective partner or the person or the horse that you're going to spend time with. And so I start with approaching, catching. Do you put your head in the halter or are you going to turn into a giraffe? Are you meeting me at the gate or do you secretly wish I would go away? And then we start working a little bit in hand. I have an, op- an option to either work a horse in the round pen or in the arena. And, and I really leave that up to the individual. Um, I will start them in a rope halter in a, in a long lead rope. I want to move their feet. I want to get them to come, you know, to go away from me. I want to see, are they willing to go away and circle around or do they have a tendency to try to run over me? Um, you know, whatever, whatever that, that individual horse, however they're reacting or responding is what I really begin to look to. And then I always ask the horse, which direction are we heading? So that's where I start. How are your ground manners? Do you have ground manners? Did somebody forget that in your education? And I love that you mentioned that it's never the horse's fault. I think you're absolutely right about that. It's normally holes that a human is its fault and has left out of the horse's training. So I love that you're able Um, to differentiate. I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. I I have met very few horses in my career. And mind you, I've had my hands on thousands of horses. I have come across very few horses where it, it was the horse and not the horse being a product of their environment. You know what I mean? Yes. So besides those things that you said, which I think is so great to go truly back to, I disobserve the horse because you're going to find out right away. Is that horse the leader alpha? Is that horse a benevolent leader or a mean leader? Right. And then, or is that horse, the Omega truly getting picked on, you know, what is that horse? And then that's going to determine how much pressure and energy you need to have around that horse or not have, um, based on their personality too. So I love all those. So once you kind of do the observing groundwork, Shelly, what are your next things as far as do you use a round pen? Do you use an arena with a lunge line? Do you use a bidding rig? What are all those kinds of steps for you? Um, for me, it's, it really is about the individual horse. So whatever that horse tells me is the direction we're heading, as far as what equipment I'm using is the direction we're going to go. And I determine that by taking it another step further and, you know, I, I will start out, I'll start out in hand lead rope. Um, and I'm talking like I have one rope halter that has a 12 foot lead rope and I have one that has a 16 foot lead rope. And then I have one that's a little bit longer than that, because if I have somebody who's really fractious, I want to give them enough room um, so that when we have this conversation, they're not on top of me and I'm certainly not on top of them. We have to find that, that happy medium between us in order to, to communicate and and have positive things happen. Um, I want to make sure that when I'm, them, you know, are there any sore spots? Are they thin-skinned? Are they sensitive? Um, do they pick their feet up? That's so important. Can I pick your feet? You know, are, are, do you have an issue with me picking up your hind feet? Because I really don't want you to put your foot in my face or upside my head. That's, that doesn't work out well for both of us. So I start there. And whether we need to work in the round pen, I have one. Um, or in the arena, that that really depends on the horse. And sometimes we use 
all of it. You know, I will transition them from working in hand to free lunging in the round pen to long lining to, you know, whatever that next step we determine. So what are your key steps then once you figure out kind of the groundwork side of things, then the next step, of course, uh, because you're a riding instructor is to see whether or not what they're mounted um, past has been. So what do you do in regards to exercises once you're up top? Yeah. Um, Again, those up top exercises, I start on the ground. Do they stand for mounting and dismounting? And, um, you know, I don't want to reenact the, the movie Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken where the horse comes running by the platform and I have to Superman onto their back. What, what <laughs> I had to do before in my past when I was much younger, but I, I learned over the years that it is important for your horse to stand and it's important that, that they don't move. I want them to grow roots and wait for me to get up there and get ready and give them their next direction. And so we spend a lot of time playing. Um, I actually got the game from Julie Goodnight called Stand Like a Statue. And um, you can Google that and find it and watch it. And I have really found that to be helpful, uh, whatever the discipline, whatever activity that we're doing, if you want them to stand for the farrier, if you want them to stand for mounting, if you want them to stand while the vet is looking at them or working on them. Um, that, that is one exercise that I have used for years and years, and it has really, really helped my horses develop that, that good um, desire to stand and wait for me. And that is so important. And then once you're up there, I know that we love to kind of get on a horse and see, huh, is this going to be a lesson horse or is this going to be a client's horse or is this going to be a horse that I'm going to keep? What exercises do you do to determine all of those things? I like to see, number one, if my horse is walking around the arena, if they're relaxed enough to start out on the buckle. Um, Or is it somebody who gets a little anxious when they get in the arena? I'll give you an example. Um, we bought a horse last year who is a finished 1D barrel horse. He has two um, Missouri State High School Rodeo Championships under his belt. He was a maturity horse. I would take him in the arena, and he was looking for the barrel, hotter than a $2 pistol. And I worked all summer to basically take that anxiety away from him and say, all I really want you to do, Reed, is walk around this arena in a relaxed manner. And so I did a combination of things with him. Um, we, we worked in the arena. We worked outside the arena. Um, I have a grass area. We worked up and down hills. I took him to areas where he could work on placing his feet over some logs, around some rocks, through the ditch lines, anything to help him build some confidence and not really worry so much about the job I was going to ask him to do. Just be with me right here in this moment, and I will take care of the rest. And so now I can take him out there, um, and, and I have a young rider coming to spend time with him this summer. They, they are an absolute great pair. She's 14 years old. She can throw him out there on the buckle, and he will go in there and just walk on that long rein. You know, so I start at the walk. Are they relaxed? You know, do they follow their nose around, or how many buttons do they have when I begin lifting the rein or putting my leg on them? You know, can they turn back on the rail? Will they turn on the forehand? Will they yield their belly to me? Can they side pass? Will they have pass? What is their level of education? And I start all of those questions, you know, right there at the walk. And then we don't progress until I have a relaxed horse that is focused on what I'm doing. Because I'll tell you, Christy, 
I don't bounce like I used to. <laughs> so <laughs> me neither, girlfriend. Slow down a little bit. Slow <laughs> slow down a little bit. You know, there's some wisdom in this aging process. So I want you to just quickly, before we run out of time, talk a little bit about your current um, thoroughbred mare, because this was an interesting retraining. It wasn't just retraining her from your perspective, but it was also getting her feet correct through your husband, Randy's perspective with the farrier work. And I think this is something really important for our listeners to understand is that sometimes you get these horses and you think, well, why can't you do something? Well, it's because they're hurting. And I think that that's, this is a good story for folks to hear. Yeah. Um, her name is Sunny Shark. And I always either call her Sunny Shark or Sharky. And if you were to meet her, you would understand she has this, this benevolence about her. She retired in 2015 um, with all four splint, bro- splint bones broken, went through rehabilitation and was adopted out. Um, in 2016, she was removed from that situation. She, she potty scored a two. Um, she had rain rot, the worst case of rain rot I had ever seen so bad that as she began to heal, she was terribly scarred along the top of her back for that whole first year. Um, I met her and wasn't looking to adopt her. I just became friends with her. She was at a boarding facility being rehabilitated where I was keeping my horses while we were closing on our property over here in Maxburg. And my husband was working on her feet. And, um, I adopted her. It was something that kind of came out of left field, but I knew that it was right. My husband said that he knew that I was going to end up with this mare before the notion ever struck me that it could happen. And so we decided to take her on. And as she was rehabilitating, she began to detox and she leached through her feet abscesses for 90 days. Let that sink in 90 days. And my friend Robin, who had been rehabilitating her, said, Shelly, I know this isn't what you signed on for, so if you want me to take her back, I will. And I said, nope, we got it. I'm committed. We're going forward. But I decided to get x-rays. I said, let's get x-rays on these feet. Let's get clarification of what we're going up against here. And what those x-rays showed was decalcification of the coffin bone right front lateral side. I mean, you could have stuck a number two pencil in the gap in that bone. And I was devastated. And I told my husband, I said, if we can get her pasture sound where she can live a good life, I'm doing it for her. And so there was nothing, we really had to think left of center and be really creative when it came to rehabilitating her feet because she has a scar on that right front foot where she went down on the track and, you know, there was a toe grab on a shoe that horrifically scarred her foot and it's, it's never going away. And so she has this funky looking foot and there's nothing to put a shoe on I and mean, you can't nail into anything. And she has zero concavity. So good thing my husband is creative and we rehabilitated this mare by using casting material, um, by using boots and pads, um, boots on, boots off. We're in the mud, we're barefoot, you know, ground gets hard. She needs her boots and pads back on. And, and it was, every single day beside this mare helping her recover. And this summer we had enough foot where we still couldn't nail a shoe on, but we were able to glue boots on her. I'm riding that mare. She is awesome. 100% sound. She outruns all the boys. Uh, I call her. She comes running in just as hard as she can go. 
And, you know, the, the first winter she had a lot of anxiety because that's when she was almost starved to death. And my husband said, hold the course, just be really consistent. You have to prove to her that you're not going to let this happen again. And this winter, she lives out like a Brumby. She doesn't have a blanket. She's got a running shelter out there. She's with the boys. There is zero anxiety from that mare. And we've had horrendous temperatures. It's been negative 40. Um, it's been a really, really hard winter. And this mare is a rock star. Shelly, I thank you so much for explaining that story. I think it's one that people need to hear that, you know, there's all, all kinds of possibilities if you get the right professional help um, and if you get the right okay. kind of knowledgeable people and you have the patience. So thank you for being on our show today. Where can our listeners find you? Thank What's you the best me. way? You know, um, they can stalk me on Facebook. Just look me up under Shelly Hensley. You're going to know it's me because I've got like the CHA background and it's, I'm easy to find. So, you know, if anybody has any questions or they have further questions about what else we did with, with Sunny Shark, please don't hesitate to contact me because I love to see what people are doing with their horses. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for being on the show today and talking about this really important topic here on Training Tuesday. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. Well, there you go. So everybody ready to go out and get a new horse to retrain? I think it's just cool. You know, you never know what you're getting and it's just kind of an adventure and it's, it's good. You know, these ones that need rehoming um, is certainly a good place to start. And there's a lot of those and there's a lot of just ones that you hear yeah. about through a friend that can no longer take care of them. You know, there's, there's lots of possibilities out there. But it is for the people who want yeah. to spend the time to do it. That's key. Yeah. And if you, if you're, if yeah. you're, yeah, I think the, go ahead, Jennifer. The common thread throughout for these successful um, adventures in upcycle, I, I, I'm going to start calling it upcycling horses, is you go back to the basics, you don't skip any steps, you don't make any assumptions about what they already know, and you have to really stay the course, and I noticed you ask for help. Yes. Yeah. They all did, even the professionals themselves asked for help. So it's good. And if you want to just get it's on not a ride, a line. not a yeah. good avenue for you. Get yeah, the one that is, no. right? Get so, one that's ready to go. Right. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yep. So, and it's not like you have to do this. I mean, a lot of people enjoy doing it, and you better enjoy doing it because <laughs> it's going to be a process. So yes, with some of them I'll more than you, others. But. There's a lot of good horses out there ready to go, though. And if you don't want to have to deal with it, just want to go on and ride, oh, my gosh, go down that road because that's very pleasurable, too, and doesn't take near as much time. Right. <laughs> And you can do it tomorrow as opposed to six months to a year from now. There you go. So, exactly. <laughs> so, that'd be me. I just want Jennifer to hand them to me where I can just get in and drive. That's what I like. Although we did, you know, we kind of, well, I wouldn't say retrained. We trained Scooter. So, you know, we've kind of trained him, but it's been a process. It's been two years. Scooter had been to, yeah. had been to kindergarten when yeah, we got him. Right. That's kind of where he was. Yeah, we kind of brought him up. But he's now maybe in junior high, if he's lucky, um, on a good day. He's in junior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's in junior high. And he's pulling. He's pulling the girls' pigtails. Yep. He's putting uh, smoke bombs in the bathroom toilet. Yep, exactly. He's putting graffiti on the yeah, gym wall. In suspension yep. most Jeffrey's of the time. Yep, that's, <laughs> that's that's a hackney phony. Well, where can people again? What's the website? 
Yes, chainstructors.com to find someone near you for that professional help or for a horse that's ready to go for you that's already been retrained or CHA.horse if you're an equine professional and want to learn more about getting certified and those types of things. Of course, you can find all of our past episodes at horsesinthemorning.com or at horseradionetwork.com. We have 15, 16, 17 shows now. So if you want to, you can head over to our app at uh, just search for Horse Radio Network iOS or Android and you'll find the app. We'll be back tomorrow. Jamie will be here. And then uh, uh, don't forget to get your really bad ads in to Jennifer at horseradionetwork.com for Friday. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Glenn and Jen. Talk soon.